Hi, I'm Anna McEwen, and this is The Epic Narrative. And now, my dad, Bob Switzer. Well, glory. <laughs> Today... Today's today's one of those you know continuation of this famous story of of David and I hope we complicated the last the early part of it enough for you. But but I just you know all last night I just kept thinking of Uriah in that final battle of his life and how he didn't you know did he know did he not know I. My imagination gets gets you know uh, captured by these sort of things. Like he was so confused as to why he was at the palace, and David clearly pushing him to go sleep with his wife. At some point, did he wonder, even 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 as a passing thought, like like no, that can't be true. Like even even if he denied it, did he wonder, like like did he like what is going on? Why does David want me here? Why does David insist that I go sleep with my wife? And then he gives me a message to bring back to Joab. It's it's like it's it's the whole. I think it I think uh, it took two days, right? So for two days he carries this message back to Joab. He has to be wondering, what is going on? Why did I have to do this? Why did I have to leave my men? I think he landed. I think I said this in the podcast, but I think he landed on this idea that somehow David had lost trust in him and needed to know how committed he was to to the you know to the honor of God, to the honor of country, to the obedience of David. Some somehow I think all that uh, questioning of of his loyalty I think is where he landed, but. Then again, he had to be incredibly confused as to why he was questioned. Why would his loyalty have been questioned? And and I, you know, it's kind of like uh, you get in trouble, but you have no idea why, and you're just wondering after after it's proven that you're innocent, like there was, or or the the you know the the authority, your authority, just finally says. Yeah, let's put that behind us. Like, okay, just go back to normal life. You, the uh, you know HR uh, contacts you and and you need to go in for an interview and and there's all these questions about what you did and who you talked to and did you send these emails and you know we looked at your history and why why did you go to this site why you, whatever and and it's all innocent. You're innocent of it all, but. When, and when it's all done, they're like, okay, fine, uh, you know, have a good day. And you think, what what just happened? What just happened? Why did that happen to me? What did I do? What did I say? Who did I who did I piss off to make make this happen? Like I just think Uriah had all of those thoughts going on in his head as he's walking back to the battle. And as he gets close to the battle scene again, he's he's excited to see his men. He's he's like engaged a little bit. He brings the message to Joab. Joab reads the message, I think, in front of him, and then just says, "All right, thank you. You know, go go see your men." And Uriah is off to see his men, and then Uriah uh, Joab goes through the necessary channels to set 
Uriah up to put him in a very precarious and unsurvivable situation. And the, the, the enemy comes out of the gates. He has Uriah's team. Now, I don't know if he's the that's the only team. But I have a I I just I don't see I don't see how this happens unless there are members of Uriah's team that um, that are part of this and aware of this uh, new plan. And they get close enough because we know he's struck by an arrow. We, they get close enough to be shot at by arrows from the wall of the city that they're besieging. And so I'm guessing the shields are up over their heads and and along the sides because part of part of the strategy when people will get close is the arrows would come in from the sides. You'd strike them in the legs, you know, break down their their little turtle shell concept. And there's people that hear a signal, whether or hear it or see it, and they just peel back. They just peel back. They retreat. And Uriah is there, and and the arrows are coming in, and he's he's like ah, just internally it has to be so bizarre because he has to know that what just happened isn't supposed to happen. He heard it. He heard the drum beat or the whistle or the or you know he saw the the flag being waved. He didn't know what it meant, but clearly other people did, and they peel back in retreat. And he's left exposed. Not He's not the only one. They didn't leave him alone. They left him exposed. Because if you remember, the messenger says, you know, a lot of people died and Uriah the Hittite fell. And although, you know, clearly, according to the way that Joab instructed the messenger, David gets upset when his men die. But he said, don't, you know, don't let him get upset. Just remind him that Uriah the Hittite was one of the ones that died. And immediately David's reaction was, oh, well, that happens. Yeah, some, sometimes you die. You know, it's it's war. Tell Joab everything's fine. Uh, keep pressing in and, you know, take the city. But, you know, was there a moment? And this is the part that my imagination kept going back to last night. Was there that, that moment? If, if this was a movie and one of those really well-directed and produced moments where you capture, uh, I, I picture, you know, the battle scene, the dust, the the energy, the arrows, and then and then Uriah seeing and and sensing that his his defenses and other, you know, his whatever, his uh, his turtle shell is is depleted. People are leaving. Does he have that moment? And that's what I'm saying in my in my head. It's that it's that moment where for a split flash of a second, just before he's struck by the arrow, does he think David did this? Like this this was David. I've been commanded to die. And and in that complicated moment, did he feel betrayed? Did he feel honored in some military loyal way like David wanted me to die and now I'm dying and I'm honored to do that 
because I love my country and I love my God and I love David and I love my wife. Like everything about him said, if this is what I'm commanded to do, then this is what this is what I'll do. Like I don't I don't know. I just I would love to know for sure, but then again, I love my imagination, so I love not knowing. So we have all of that that goes on. And and the battle, the besieging continues and and we just get basically we we jump ahead, Second Samuel twelve, we jump ahead about a year. Uh <laughs> David's doing what David does. He's living life, doing you know, doing king things. <laughs> I'm sure he's been to the tabernacle and worshipped many times. He's doing war things. He's doing nation things. He's collecting uh, supplies for the the temple that he's you know he can't build, but he one of his sons will. He's he's doing what he does. It, and and it says the Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he he said uh, there were <laughs> he said there were two certain two men in a certain town, one rich, one poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb. And he and he bought it, and he raised it, and it grew up with him and his children, and shared his food, and drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. <clears throat> there's there's a lot of brilliance in this story that David I mean that Nathan brings out to David and you have to uh remember I think I think a lot of times when people have, have think about conviction they think about guilt and they think about shame they think when God convicts like when the Holy Spirit convicts you, when God convicts you of sin, like you're going to be, you're going to feel ashamed. You're going to feel guilty. And I don't think conviction does that. I think, I think when you are properly convicted by the Lord, it's about relationship. He, the, the Lord looks at sin as this, you know, you open yourself up to destruction of relationship. You open yourself up to the loss of relationship, to brokenness in relationship with him and with others around you that are impacted by the by the choice that you're you're about to make. And you're free to make that choice. So the conviction comes with with an invitation to restore the relationship, to bring it back to where it it was, to bring it back to where it should be, to to resurrect. I mean, if it, if it's been long enough and and deep enough of a of a destruction, you could actually, you know, you could say it's an invitation to resurrect the the relationship. I I, I literally had this happen to me last night. It was awesome. Uh, something a, a rumor had started years ago. Uh, I guess I could say this. Yeah. So someone someone had left our church. I mean, it's not. I mean, I I work at the church. I, I'm one of the pastors, so it is. I mean, I I have personal. It's personal when someone leaves the church, but I don't I don't get. Anyways, it doesn't matter. That uh, see, I went. I was really run down this road. Okay, Bob, focus. 
<laughs> that engineer in my head. Uh, so they had he, he this this family had left uh, the church years ago, about three four years ago. And when he left, and the family left, it came back to me through rumor because I didn't actually hear it from them, but through rumor it was my fault. Now I when he had left, I was relatively new at the church. I I'd, I'd come on staff about a year earlier. And I, I admit, my I have a big personality, and when I'm excited, it's hard for me to hold that back. And I, I have learned to consciously hold it back because it is. It's booming. It's loud. It's, it's enthusiastic. I can, I can, I've blown people away. I've offended people just because of my excitement. And I kind of did that when I started here. I was so excited. It had been such a dark time for me prior to my uh, employment at this particular church. Uh, I had been fired from another church. It was ugly, it was harsh. I think I covered that actually in like uh, the first or second podcast of this whole series. Enough about that. So when I came here, I was really fired up and I just thought I just thought everything was going along great. It wasn't. Uh, but uh, along along the same lines, there were other things that this family wasn't necessarily tracking with. And so they left, which is, you know, their choice. And we don't, by principle, we don't pursue people that, that leave. We, we, I I usually do a little bit of a follow-up to try and find out why. And then, and then that's it. I mean, we try to learn from it and we move on. We know we're not the only church on the planet. We know we're not the only people that, you know, that, that can minister to people. Like people can find other churches. It's, it's not a. It's a, it's actually a good a good way to approach it. Um, so anyway, so these guys left, and I remember calling them about a couple months after they left, and I was just checking in, seeing where they're at, and you know I got some information from them uh, as to why they weren't coming, but it was all practical stuff, well family, uh, sports, uh, whatever, everything was fine. Then I hear back several months after that that it's actually my fault that they left, and and it that was delivered in a rather intense way uh the the people who started the church you know blame me for it and that hurt no well it could have hurt i i was in my head i thought okay he didn't tell me this like the the people who left didn't tell me this and if this is really true then you know i can learn from it but I have a feeling there was there were other factors because I've just been around for a long time. Anyway, <laughs> a couple years go by, and uh, I actually somebody who was part of the whole deal, you know, uh, friends with this guy, came to me and said, "Listen, I I know that there was a rumor that started that said you were the reason why they left, and I just want you to know that's not true." And I was like, "Oh." Awesome. That was good to know. I mean, it felt good to hear that officially because in my head I thought I can't be the only reason why this person left. But if I am, I am like, and I can't deal with it unless they're willing to talk to me about it. So that's that. I'm not going to deal with it through third or fourth parties. Like that's just dangerous and crazy. Although some people try it, but it's, it's never worked. It literally never works. So 
Please don't try it. But then last night, uh, this the the husband of the of the family actually had been kind of bouncing in and out of church uh, for a couple months, and it was great to see him. And he was very cordial to me, and I thought I thought this is good because I, I kind of you know I had heard that it wasn't my fault. This is it kind of feels like it's not my fault, like there really isn't anything between us. But then last night we got done, and he. Like he was like, Bob, can, you know, can I talk to you for a second? I was like, absolutely. And I purposely sat down because I was like, I, I want to do this right. And we talked for a few minutes and he goes, you know, you might have heard this, that it was your fault that we left. And I just want you to know, I, I hope you're not holding on any guilt from that. It wasn't true. Uh, you know, there were a lot of things going on. There were a lot of contributing factors. Um, you were relatively new. Uh, blah blah blah. It was it was just a really good conversation, and I was like, you know what? I really appreciate you doing this. This is awesome. He he said, you know, I should have just talked to you like I'm talking to you now. I should have just said, Bob, this, you know, I have a problem with some of the stuff you're doing. Or he goes, it's just there was no need to hold on to it and and blame you for it because evidently they did blame me. That was their easy that was the easy way out, right? I I became their their scapegoat when they originally left. But the truth was, it wasn't the reason why they left. And eventually the truth wins out and awesome. And I was able to tell him this, you know, I told him my end of the story. I told him I wasn't feeling guilt, but I was curious and I was really glad to have, you know, have confirmed what I suspected and that I, you know, I'm really glad to have him around. And he's honestly, he's a fabulous young man, awesome family, great kids, like, I hope I hope they come back on a regular basis. I really, really do. And there's nothing there between us. But a lot of people, wow. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just looked out at the time and it's like 17 minutes in and I'm thinking, you literally haven't even started the story. <laughs> well, that's not true. I did read some verses. <laughs> oh, no. Oh. <laughs> Why did you tell this story? I don't know. Ask the engineer. Engineer, Bob. Why, why did I start the story? Oh, guilt. Yes. A lot of people believe that, that God convicts with guilt, that if, if they don't feel guilt, they're not feeling conviction. That is not the way God works. Guilt is not something God has in heaven at his disposal. It is not a weapon of God to use to help his people get closer to him. Conviction is something that he has in his in his tool belt, and it's a conviction that's based in love. And the love is an invitation that says, listen, there is something in the way of the full flow of who we are. There's something in the way that gets that 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 we need to remove. And it's not like remove it because you're a horrible person. It's remove it because what's what what it's doing is it's damaging. It's damaging relationship, and we can we can get rid of it. Like God's goodness can come in and remove this. Your identity as a as a child of God, your identity as a prince of, of heaven doesn't involve this kind of behavior. It doesn't involve this kind of of, of wrong principles that you're following. You can live without it. You'll actually live better without it. You'll actually be a better person without it because when when we remove this from you, 
and we replace it with love, you'll become more of who you're designed to be. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's the invitation. Conviction is an invitation from God. It's an invitation for more. It's more of God's presence. It's more of God's love. It's more. That's what he invites you to. That's what he wants you to become a part of. More of him. It's, it's, a, it's an awesome thing. It really is. And it's not a, it's not a, a, sorry, it's not a demanding thing. Conviction doesn't come in and say, do this or die. Conviction comes in and says, you're, this, this is an option for you. You can choose life or you can continue to live in, you know, live with this in your life. It's not that you're living in sin. It's that you're living with it. Your damaging relationship here, your your awareness of God's presence is going to become more frustrated. It's going to become more uh, convoluted, more dim. Your ability to see things from heaven's heaven's perspective is going to dim. Your relationships are going to be damaged. As as even if you look at them and say everything's going great, it's not as good as it could be. If love isn't involved at, a, at at its maximum level, eventually it's going to you're going to see the damage that's done by it. So when Nathan comes in, <laughs> back to the story, it says the Lord sent Nathan to David, and it's like David just launches into the story. But I I I have to wonder, like, what was the atmosphere? You know, what was Nathan's attitude? I know, I know that there are many who bring Nathan in as the hammer. Like he comes in like, like an angry Thor. He brings the hammer of God's conviction. He brings the, he brings the thunder, the thunder and the lightning of God, the judgment of heaven because he is the prophet of God. And a lot of times speakers who like to present Nathan that way consider themselves the same thing. They like to consider themselves the voice of God's judgment. They want to be the hammer. They want to be the thunder and the lightning in your life. They want to be able to to convict you and direct you in the in another you know in in another way. They want you to feel the weight of the sin that you've that you have uh, you know uh, stepped into. It's 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 just interesting. The other the other part is you know was for me when you have to confront someone. It's a for me that's a weighty thing. And that's probably, <laughs> I was just thinking, it's because you're, you're of your Enneagram number, whatever that is. It's just the latest, the latest wave of, of personality testing in our church. And what's weird is it's, Enneagram's been around for like several hundred years. It's been developed and redeveloped and repackaged and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's fine. It's a fine personality thing, whatever. Anyways, that's what went through my head. Well, Bob, you're wired for people. And so, yeah, you feel bad when you have to go confront somebody because you know that it's damaging. But the potential, I guess, when I when when I have to confront somebody, and it's not very often because I, I, I believe you can 
convict without confrontation. I think you you can, if you do it well, you can ask the questions necessary to bring people to the same conclusion that Holy Spirit has. And when they stand there, they get to make the choice. And you don't have to guilt them into making, quote, the right choice. You can just invite them to make the choice. You can you can lay it out for them. And then you can walk away and say, all right, well, that's, you know, that's what you, you know, you're doing. That's your choice. I just wanted to take an opportunity to talk to you about what's going on. You know, I just wanted to take the opportunity to expose to you the damage that that's occurring to the relationship that you're in or the relationships around you. It's, it's really, it's men to do this, to do this well takes it takes a it takes a lot like you've got to prep for this you got to you got to put things together and so yes did the lord send nathan to david i think so now now this is where this is where again more questions did he get a word of knowledge did the lord go to nathan and say david had uriah killed after he slept with bathsheba go talk to him about it because this is almost a year later. The child's been born. Or almost. Uh, the son born to you will die is, is what Nathan ends up saying. Anyways. So it's it's not, okay, so it's maybe not quite a year. It's, it's nine months. It's close. Bathsheba is well impregnated at this point or close to giving birth and he go when he goes to see david i i want to say it's close to a year because of the way this chapter ends because there's there's war going on so this is probably again in the spring of the next year maybe early spring maybe Bathsheba got pregnant during the summer late summer as uh as you know as the battle raged on as they had besieged the city for several months but Nathan comes in, and I don't think I, I don't know. Like I said, uh, I don't know if they, if God like told him this is what David did nine months ago, and I need you to go take care of this, or if Nathan heard the stories, if Nathan had had heard the rumors. There's so many people involved in the in the calling of Bathsheba in the in the night that they spent together. In the interactions with David and Uriah, there's literally like a hundred people that are that have been involved in in the uh, in the sleeping together and in the cover up. And I can't believe that they didn't. Somebody didn't talk to somebody else because you you first you talk to people you also know are involved in this. And then based on their reactions. Maybe you talk a little bit more. Maybe somebody sees you talking together and says, "Hey, what you know? What what happened? Or what were you guys talking about? Ah, oh, nothing." And then there's others who who just you know they just they're so hurt by it. They confused as to why they were involved in this cover up. They don't understand why David behaved this way. And their significant other, or their wife, or their children, or somebody says, "You know what's bothering you? Something's really bothering you. What's going on?" And they say, well, I just, you know, King David did this, or I was asked to be a part of this, and 
and one of our captains died because of it. Like, I, ah, there's just so many ways that the rumor would start and the gossip would, would flow. And there were those who had the information that probably really wanted to take advantage of it. I have no doubt. And Joab was probably had to shut that kind of stuff down. And I think that at the end of this chapter, we see that Joab showed tremendous loyalty. And we'll talk about that later. But there's just a lot of, uh, there's a lot going on here. So I don't know if God just flat out told Nathan. If Nathan heard these rumors, some people were probably very spiritually uh in turmoil over what they had been involved in because they didn't have a, they didn't think they had a choice not to be. And so maybe the priest heard about it. Maybe Zadok brought it up to Nathan. Nathan went to God. Maybe God confirmed it. Yep. You know, you're right. You, you know, and, and, and this is what happens a lot of times when you're quote in ministry and, and everyone's in ministry, but there's times that you find out or you hear about things that somebody might've been involved in and then you get this this urge to go talk to them, right? You you look at their, you look at them, uh, or you find out whatever. You hear the rumor, you find out what they're doing, and you say, "Oh no, 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 no! Oh, I need to go talk to them." And maybe people in your life say, "No, you don't. No, it's not none of your business." And you think at some like you just can't get it out of your head, and so basically you make it your business. You make it your business. And some would say, well, it's, of course it's Nathan's business. He's the prophet of God, and David's the king, and 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 part of the prophet's job is to bring the judgment of God. And I go, no, golly day, that's just not, I don't think, I don't think. <clears throat> just end it there, Bob. No, I don't, I don't think God's that way. And I do understand that if you think God is a wrath-filled God, whose judgment is that of death and destruction, then yes, you would think the prophet of God was to bring that to to the people, that his job is to bring judgment. And like I said, a lot of people who run ministries and run churches believe themselves to be the prophet of God, even though even if theologically they don't believe in prophets, they believe that part of their job is to bring the conviction and judgment of God on their people for sin. And if they hear that there's sin in your life, if they hear that you're cheating on your wife or that you've, you know, you're taking drugs or you're, or you're beating your children, like whatever, they, they just, they'll step in and, and they pull a, a Nathan, what they think Nathan did here. And they, they bring the judgment of God on you. And they preach this, this passage often like that. Like it's not a job I want, but you know it's a job I have. I have to. I have to convict you. That is the job of the Holy Spirit. It has always been the job of the Holy Spirit, and I believe the prophet here gets involved because he has to. Like internally, he's he has an opportunity to invite David in, but when he finds out what happens when he confirms what happens, when, when, uh, I guess when it, when it, when he's convinced it's occurred and, and you can get that convinced when you're used to hearing the word or the voice of God, when you're used to 
being in his presence, it's pretty clear when he confirms things. And you can step out in confidence, even if it's stuff that nobody else is supposed to know. In uh, in in some church cultures, cultures where hearing God is something that that is practiced and encouraged, and uh, and people get quite good at it, it, like in the culture I'm in. I wasn't always in that culture, so I want to I want to honor those guys too. I know that I know that they love Jesus and they love God too, and they don't they don't believe that God can speak that way, but but. In the culture I'm in now, we do, and we'll call it like, you know, you read someone's mail. That's the phrase that we'll use sometimes. Like he just, he just read my mail. Like he just laid me out. Like he just, or she just, like she just told me things that nobody else would know. And the Lord will do that. And but the, but it's not. It's never about the dirt. It's always about the gold. So many people who hear. The voice of God, as God is is trying to identify the gold in someone, right? You get you have to dig through the dirt, and so sometimes you'll see a lot of dirty things on people. Like I've I've sat with people and I've thought, wow, like clearly this person is 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 you know is overwhelmed by porn, like they are addicted, and I don't look at them and say. You know, the, God told me that you're addicted to porn, and that's just a really bad situation. And you're doing this, you're destroying this, you're destroying that. You, you have, you know, set yourself up to be uh, to to get all these negative impacts that can happen when you're addicted to porn. You're going to deal with this. I don't, I don't need to do all that. Instead, my role in conviction is to invite them into a greater sense of identity of who they are. That's my role. And so I will bring out of them, I will call out of them the the, the purpose that God has for their life. And then I will say, you know, when because of, of who God made you to be, because of, of what he's setting you up to do, like you need to be careful of the behaviors that you have that could that could jeopardize that or at least hinder that or frustrate that or give the enemy access to you in such a way that that when you know when you are successful you could you could end up being blindsided by something like this is and I don't I don't need to identify the addiction I don't need to look at them and say you know your porn addiction is going to destroy your life I I don't need to I need to invite them to a greater awareness of God's presence because God's presence the only is is what's going to break that addiction. And God's presence is what's going to increase their identity and purpose. And that's where I need to step in. And and Nathan I think was quite convic- conflicted. I think Nathan you know confirmed one way or the other Nathan got the information from God. He confirmed the information from God. And he steps into it, <sighs> and he tells David a story. Again, I think he prepared the story. I think, I think at first, I, I mean, if he's anything like me, and I, I know, like all of us have to do this imagination thing through your own personal life. And so for me, he, he would have talked out loud to himself a lot. 
he would have said, all right, how, how do I, how do I, how do I do this? How do I do this? And he would have rehearsed it and he would have rehearsed it. And eventually this is what he came up with. Now, I think Nathan also has a great sense of justice and a sense of, of defending the innocent. And in his awareness of what David did, Bathsheba comes off innocent. And I uh, we covered that in the last podcast. Like just the her her presentation in the story, in the way that it's the the traditional uh, writings and oral traditions of rehearsing it, the lack of her response shows a lack of her responsibility. She did not hold responsibility. People did not look at Bathsheba and think she shouldn't have been on the roof, uh, you know, bathing at that time of day. She knew the king was home. She knew he liked to walk around on the roof and she's out there bathing. None of that falls on Bathsheba. And I think Nathan internalizes what, what occurred and what he confirms has occurred. And, and part of him becomes involved on a personal level. He looks at what's going on and he says, this isn't right. This is not right. This isn't right. Bathsheba was raped. Bathsheba becomes a, a, uh, a widow because of David, because of David's pride, because of David's arrogance, which is almost the same thing. Because of David's uh, selfishness, also the same thing. Because David, David's, David was a bad man. <laughs> David made a really bad choice. And all these negative things happened to Bathsheba. So David comes up, or not, Nathan, Nathan puts together this story. I have a feeling that Nathan was a storyteller when it came to, to his, quote, we'll call it preaching. But when 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 he would stand before the people, I think he told story because this is how he approaches David. I don't think, I don't think this is the only way to approach David. He could have come in any different way. He could have just, he could have just started asking questions. Hey, David, about nine months ago, um, were you, you know, were you walking on the roof? Did you see something, someone, and what, what did you choose to do? Like, what, what was your choice? How, how did you approach that evening? Or he could have said, hey, David, do you think it's right for someone with multiple wives and concubines to also rape women? Like, what would you do if, if someone in your, in your military or someone on your staff, you know, raped a girl? What, what do you, what, what would you do with that? And just let David, you know, respond. I mean, I, I don't know. There's I, there's more than one way to approach this. Nathan could have done a number of things. He approaches it with a narrative. He tells a story, which is powerful. But I also think it's kind of his in his wheelhouse. I think it's what he's used to doing. And I don't sense in... And in the nuances of the of the language, there's nothing in this language that makes David uh, concerned. Like when Nathan shows up, David doesn't wonder why. He doesn't say, hmm, Nathan, what are you doing here? Nathan came and went in and out of the court of David 
often. He he would have been an uh, a open invitation type of person. Nathan went to the tabernacle and would worship. David would have found him there periodically. And they probably had over the last nine months or a year. They probably had hung out. They probably had laughed. They probably had worshiped together. I don't know if David ever thought this is this is it you know done. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I don't doubt that David believed that God was with him because he always believed God was with him. I mean, honestly, that's a that's an awesome that's an awesome approach to life to believe that God is always with you. Like that's just that's just easy. I think that's uh, you know <laughs> I I know I know God wasn't happy about what had happened, but God didn't leave him. So David felt God's presence. He knew it. And he and he interacted with it. And he was still doing like I said, he was doing his thing as a king. So he had seen Nathan. This was not like a surprise visit. It wasn't out of the blue. Nathan comes into the into the court. He's probably hanging out. He's waiting for the right time. Man, when you're gonna you're when you're gonna confront somebody, timing is so important. And people who confront well understand that. I mean, all communication is is impacted by your timing. And and it, it's really important that you do it that you know that you do it well. And and I often when I'm brought into a confrontational situation, I don't think, well, you know, good, like this is what I'm good at. I think, wow, I've been invited into this. So clearly what the Lord trusts me with, what I carry, what I do well is what he wants in this situation. I don't like go into this confrontation mode like, okay, now I'm the, now I'm the hammer. Now I'm the, now I'm the judger. I always approach whatever circumstance, I, I approach it as, as being shepherded there by God. And when I'm put in a position of confrontation or conf, or, or conviction, I think, all right, my, my role is to be who I am. And I'm somebody who generally is pretty happy and optimistic. I bring hope, I bring peace, and I bring creative solutions. Creativity is just one of the, one of the ways that God speaks with me. It's a it's an aspect of wisdom. The word wisdom carries with it in its definition creativity. It's why I believe artists and and uh and well that would be all like musicians, like all forms of art, all that creativity is all in a, all ties into the wisdom of God. It all flows from heaven. So when I when I come into a situation, that's what I approach it with. I approach it with, okay, this is who I am. I'm going to listen to what's going on here, and I'm going to ask the Lord for creative wisdom on how to navigate this so that I bring hope to this circumstance, so I bring peace to the relationship, so I give uh, I give communication some clarity, and I call out of them who they are. I'm going to tell them that they're awesome people, that God loves them, that this is not insurmountable, that it's possible to get through this, because all of that is true all the time. But I'm also going to remind them that they all that they have a choice in the circumstance and that they can make that choice. And I'm not here to tell them what to choose. And I'm not going to force them to choose. I'm just going to I'm going to walk with them as far as I need to walk with them, as far as they want me to walk with them. Most of the time I've been invited into these situations. 
And if I haven't been invited in, then I, I wait for the right time and I basically say, I'm gonna I'm gonna insert myself here because we have relationship. I'm gonna I'm gonna take a moment to bring something up to you because because I think it's I think what I've heard is true. And I want to see if it is true. And if it is true, then it's something I want to talk to you about. If it's not true, I really want you to shut it down so that I don't, you know, you if you deny it, I'm done. Like, that's fine. I believe you. So Nathan comes in and he, I don't think he just launches into the story. I think he's probably in the courthouse or in the courtyard and he's hanging around the palace and He's talking with people, and in his mind, he's like, "I gotta write. I gotta. I gotta wait for the right time. I gotta wait for the right time, and I'm gonna tell David a story." And that's what he did. He waits for the perfect time, and he tells David a story. He says there were two men of certain in a certain town. Again, I, I think he, I think any good storyteller is going to frame this right. He's going to say, you know, hey, David, I, I, I got a situation, or David, I have a story to tell you, and I, I'm just curious what your take on it would be. He says there are two men in a certain town, one rich, one the other very poor, and the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb, and he bought it, and he raised it, and he grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, it drank from his cup, it even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. So this sheep has been around for a long time. It grew up with his children. They probably, you know, sheared it at least once a year. I think they shear twice a year, actually, a spring and a, and a fall shearing. I could be wrong on that. Now, a traveler came to see the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now, the nuances of this story is that he is that he he stole it from him, probably because it was understood that that the man probably lived on the rich man's property. He probably was one of the workers that that. Uh, provided some service for the rich man, whether he was a carpenter. Uh, I don't think he was a shepherd. He probably would have had more than one sheep, but he was probably, you know, he might have been a farmer. He might have been a carpenter. He might have been a, a servant in the house. It doesn't really matter. But he took what whatever money he had years ago, and he bought a little lamb so that they could have kind of a family pet. Because lamb, you know, lambs are incredibly loyal. They get, they get, we'll call it imprinted on their owner and they stick with them. It's one of the things that, that the good, you know, that a good shepherd does. He, he makes sure that the lamb knows, knows his scent and knows his voice and the lamb stays close to them. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. I suppose at times it's annoying as well. Cause you know, if you've ever had an animal that won't leave your side they, you know, you can triple over them and that sort of thing. But this this lamb was something he loved. It was something he spent a lot of time with. It waited for him at the door. It followed him in and out of the house. And and sometimes, uh, you know, if it was a cold night, he'd take the lamb in bed with him, and the lamb would just sleep right next to him, 
keep them warm all night. It was awesome. He probably the lamb probably did the same thing with the children. They probably all slept in the same bed or close to it. So when the rich man went and he took the lamb, it wasn't that that this would have been a illegal thing for him to do to steal it, but it was incredibly rude and mean and unjust because the rich man had plenty to choose from. He and 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 he only had to you know it was only a one-time meal. And I don't know why the rich man wouldn't want to give up his you know one of his own sheep. It's the same nuance of the question as to why David didn't sleep with one of his wives or his concubines at night. It doesn't matter that the that the little lamb was was awesome and perfectly, you know, tenderized or whatever. Like it, it doesn't matter. Why why would he do this? There's something incredibly unjust and unfair and and rude and and it just it was a bad situation for the rich man to do this to the poor man. And all of those nuances David would have picked up on, all of the all of the influx of the of the language, all of the cultural impact of what has happened in this story, David would have identified with it all. He identified it as a as a shepherd, he identified as a poor man, he identified as the rich man, he identified as as someone who was in love with sheep and grew up with them. Because, you know, he had sheep that were that close to him. Like, all of this makes sense to him. To, to be unjustly taken advantage of by rich people, which he had, had experienced as a child and as a uh, young teenager. To be mocked and made fun of. He knows what that's like. He knows when everything you have, the rich, you know, those over you, make sure you know you don't actually have it. Like, it doesn't actually belong to you. It actually belongs to them. Because you're worthless, you're of no value, and yet you know internally you have value, but but it's so hard to remember and it's so hard to know because people keep reminding you you don't, and then things like this happen to you, and it's like ah, oh, I I I just you know I I wanted that I I I believe that was mine like that was the one thing that was bringing me comfort and now it's gone. David would have David would have tracked with all of this, and David's reaction is something that that is David's reaction. And I've been going on for a little bit here so we're going to we're going to hit David's reaction uh next week. But this is a this is a this is a big day. Cuz confrontation and conviction when it comes when it really comes from heaven, it's something that brings you hope and it's something that brings you uh creative solutions and and develops a deeper relationship with people it doesn't leave you empty it doesn't leave you cold it doesn't leave you guilty and shame filled the conviction of god is something that is really powerful and invita- and, and and inviting so i invite you to come back again next week on the epic narrative have a good day everyone Hey everyone, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.